2: You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Got our friend Josh Hammer with us for this episode. He is a Newsweek editor at large. He's a lawyer and he's got a podcast, the Josh Hammer Show, which you should catch uh, whenever you get a chance. And it is not called Hammer Time, despite my requests and my reverence for the great 1980s era music of Mr. M.C. Hammer. But Josh, it's still an excellent podcast.
2: Fuck, you know, you were one of our first ever guests. You were literally like guest number three, four, five, something like that. So I appreciate the plug, brother. It's good to see you as always.
0: Yeah, man, you too. Uh, and obviously, it was. It's, it's, if you start out so strong on a podcast like that with such an amazing guest, it's going to be the best going forward so I, I got a bunch of things to ask you about um because you like to uh you like to geek out about the constitution and about statutes and about law right that's fair to say i think i don't think i'm you're you're totally fair. Just, um, a man a man who likes to throw down on this stuff um let's start with the supreme court for a second uh, i i think that the uh, democrat media has been running i've been seeing it like popping up on cnn and they're really going after Justice Thomas. And I, I, my sense is people on the right have been pretty, like, not really paying that much attention to this. It just hasn't, hasn't crossed because we don't see anything that's Justice Thomas is bad and think it's all exciting. But let's start, because you've been writing about and, and pointing out that there's more, there's a more uh, full-spectrum assault on the court happening right now, the Supreme Court. But tell us what's going on with Justice Thomas first, what they've been trying to do there.
2: All right, so starting... Like over a month ago. So it was early April. The website ProPublica, which has won Pulitzer Prizes for investigative journalism, for whatever a Pulitzer Prize in journalism is worth or not worth these days. So they start a series of hit pieces. I mean, I'm not sure all hell is to say, but these are very clearly hit pieces. They are clearly written, quote unquote, investigated with the intention of delegitimizing Justice Clarence Thomas, which, by the way, is not a particularly new tactic. For the left. I mean, going back to the early 1990s, of course, when Clarence Thomas was first nominated to the Supreme Court by then President George H.W. Bush, we had the whole Anita Hill workplace harassment allegations that got so bad that Clarence Thomas, who was then in his early 40s sitting before then Senator Joe Biden's Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, accused Senate Judiciary, Senate Judiciary Committee Democrats of trying to engage in a quote, high tech lynching. So this is nothing new for the left. They've literally been coming after Clarence Thomas for over three decades now. You know, he he is the man right now that he was then. He doesn't particularly care about these sort of attacks. But ProPublica, their first allegation was effectively that Justice Thomas is too close friends with Harlan Crow. That literally is the, the nature of the first allegation. So Harlan Crow is a Dallas, Texas-based Billionaire kind of real estate tycoon. He's a well-known, generous donor and giver to various conservative and and Republican Party causes, which, by the way, that itself is is another thing the left has been trying to hit Clarence Thomas over for decades. His wife, Ginny Thomas, is a well-known conservative activist. So they've said for a long time he's too cozy with these sort of interests. So this first ProPublica piece was that he's traveled with Harlan Crow, he's gone on cruises or the private jets, whatever, and they allege that he should have disclosed it uh, you know, James Taranto of The Wall Street Journal has done a very good job of showing that no, actually according to the on-the-books judicial ethics regulatory rules, because we actually have laws about this, he was actually not required to disclose what they say he should have disclosed. And then just a couple weeks ago, ProPublica had a follow-up piece basically saying that Clarence Thomas' adopted great-nephew was going to get a free ride due, again, to Harlan Crowe's generosity because Harlan Crowe indirectly, not directly, but indirectly paid for his adopted great-nephew's first year of tuition at a nice private school. So uh, that's the basic nature of the allegation against Clarence Thomas is that he allegedly, again, allegedly, has not properly disclosed the financial ties between him and a very well-known conservative donor, Harlan Crowe.
0: Now, why do they hate Justice Thomas so much? It really does seem like he he uh, gets more ferocious um, anger from the left-wing activists out there than any other member of the court now that Scalia's passed away.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's for multiple reasons, right? One is... I mean, from a strictly kind of legal jurisprudential perspective, there is no more doctrinaire originalist than Clarence Thomas. I mean, you know, when it comes to kind of the original public meaning of the Constitution, I I think it's fair to say Clarence Thomas is the most devout, hardcore originalist on the court, even when Scalia was there. I mean, I would argue that Clarence Thomas was, you know, more originalist, um, for lack of a better term, than than Scalia. So he's very, very, very consistent, and he's very, very consistent in— delivering outcomes that the left invariably hates. I mean, whatever the case may be, whether it's same-sex marriage, whether it's abortion, affirmative action, kind of guns, I mean, basically all of kind of the hot-button cultural issues, he has been on the opposite side of the left, the mainstream media, the corporate interests, all of that stuff for literally over 30 years now. The, the slightly darker thing that's going on with Clarence Thomas, Buck, as, as I think you know all too well, is we have this situation here where you have a very conservative man who also happens to be a very black man. Now, Clarence Thomas grew up dirt poor, dirt poor in the Jim Crow South. English was not even his first language growing up. There was actually a fabulous documentary that came out around the time that COVID started in 2020. It was called Created Equals from Michael Pack and Mark Pollett, a fabulous documentary. They go into depth on Clarence Thomas's upbringing there in rural Georgia. And, you know, he really made it as kind of a dirt poor black man who grew up in the Jim Crow South. And he became a very, very, very committed conservative. And, you know, similar to Thomas Sowell, similar to Ben Carson, similar to some of these other very prominent black conservatives, Larry Elder kind of in the radio space. But Clarence Thomas probably gets it the worst of all of them. And You know, I mean, he really has kind of had this perpetual kind of Uncle Tom pejoratives thrown his way for decades. And it's it's disgusting. I mean, it is literally disgusting, but it kind of feeds this narrative to kind of paraphrase something that if I recall Ben Carson said back when he ran for president in 2015, 2016, he had some line about, you know, uppity white liberals not letting blacks leave the proverbial plantation, right? And like that is the slightly darker explanation as to what's going on here. So I think it's a combination of both of those facts.
0: want to get into more on what's going on with the court and what they're, trying to do i think to uh undermine it politicize it and we'll get to that in a second let's supreme court leaker i want to ask you about the supreme court leaker and do you think that they really don't know or do they not w- I- i've been thinking for a while that th- the theory that i have is i don't think they really want to know because it just would create such a mess for them but we can get into that in just a second you all have helped my uh, build my pillow into an amazing company because they have phenomenal products that you love it's very straightforward Got great pillows, great sheets, great slippers, a whole lot of stuff. You go on the MyPillow site, you'll see it. But really, for me, the product that started it all was the Giza Dream Sheets. These are ultra soft and breathable, but extremely durable at the same time. Right now, the Giza Dream Sheets are at the lowest price ever, coming in as low as $29.98 with promo code BUCK. Giza Dream Sheets come in multiple color styles and sizes. Now is the time to upgrade your bedding and enhance your sleep. Remember, MyPillow products come with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Just go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio list or special square. Check out this sale on the Giza Dream Sheets. When you click on this square, you'll also find deals on other MyPillow products only around for a short time. Enter promo code BUCK, that's promo code B-U-C-K, when you go to MyPillow.com for these limited-time specials. The Giza Dream Sheets, get yourself a couple pairs. If you already have some, get a new pair because sheets wear out over time. You want fresh sheets on your bed. Go to MyPillow.com. Use promo code Buck. Uh, for, first off, just on the leak of the Supreme Court uh, Dobbs opinion, Josh, that uh, for you when that came out, it seemed to me like we've entered this era now where even the rules that we thought both sides agreed on when it came to the judiciary, or at least that's that was our perception, those rules are being wiped away too. Now we're just going to leak Supreme Court decisions before they happen to pressure justices.
2: Yeah, I mean, it kind of underscores one of the greater recurring themes of the past six, seven years or so, which is it is the left who has fried foul time and time again about the rights kind of purported undermining of our norms and our decency. Obviously, former President Trump kind of being at the epicenter of that alleged undermining of norms, whereas in reality, in reality, you know, all the way going back to the Women's March, you know, you know, violent protests in 2017 through the Black Lives Matter, Antifa, you know, quasi-anarchy in in the summer of 2020, very much including this leak. It, it is time and time again the left that is the one undermining these norms without which we cannot long sustain a, a civilization, to be quite frank. And when it comes to the judiciary in particular... You know, Buck, when I first saw this, I mean, I, I remember exactly where I was. It was, it was May 3rd, 2022. I could remember the exact date without even looking it up because, I mean, it was, it was just a shocking, shocking thing. I mean, for someone like me who went to law school, I clerked on a federal court of appeals, the Fifth Circuit down in, in uh, Dallas, Texas. I mean, this is unheard of. I mean, there is no precedent whatsoever for this. And there's no precedent whatsoever for this because the Supreme Court literally cannot function. Like, they actually cannot do their job. In an environment where their private deliberations, their private emails, their drafts—I mean, how do how do these idiots think that a Supreme Court opinion gets written? I mean, the justices are, are constantly trying to persuade one another to massage the language. They need secrecy. I mean, the clerks need to know, and the justices need to know that, that those conversations are not going to be leaked. They're not going to be subpoenaed or subject to subpoena or, or anything like that. So, I mean, this was a really, really, really big deal. And by the way, I, I hate to say it, but my prediction about the leaker being found, so I remember it was that night or the day after I tweeted, I think it happened on like a Monday night, I tweeted, I bet we know the leaker by Friday. And, you know, geez, I mean, <laughs> you know, prediction that did not hold up well. But I, 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 for the life of me, just cannot believe that we purportedly do not know the leaker to this day. And I, I call BS. I, I just do not believe it. I, I, I truly, earnestly do believe that at least one justice, and if one justice knows, you have to assume all nine of them know who the actual leaker was. So the marshal of the Supreme Court had that fairly brief, I think it was like two or three, four-page something, conclusion back in January, I think he was, saying we have not identified the leaker. They had this report kind of affixed at the end by Michael Chertoff, the former Republican DHS secretary, to try to give it kind of, you know, basically just trying to do that to kind of, you know, tamp down conservative dissent. But I just don't believe it. And I doubly don't believe it because Justice Sam Alito had this very, very colorful recent interview with James Taranto of the Wall Street Journal, where he actually told James Taranto, as a sitting justice of the Supreme Court, told the Wall Street Journal op-ed page editor, he told him that he thought he knew who the leaker was. He just didn't have the evidentiary threshold to go public with it. And that is very massage language, even by Justice Alito, because he wouldn't even say that I think if he was actually damn sure confident. And again, then if he's confident, then I think the rest of the court knows. So I call BS on the whole thing. And it's one thing, Buck, that, that uh, myself and also our mutual friend, Ben Weingarten, we talk about this issue, I feel like, all the time on our NatCon Squad podcast, which we do every week. Ben and I are two of the guys who are just beating the drum on this because it is so important to get to the bottom of this. I mean, this leaker must be publicly identified, publicly shamed, and reprimanded. I mean, there have to be serious repercussions for this.
0: Um, this is uh, also a moment in time where I feel like I, I need to just think of all the possibilities here, Josh. Uh, do you think it's possible that it could have been, it would be a lib, and that's clear, I mean, that was clear to me from the beginning. Some people were trying to say, we don't know. Yeah, it, it's someone who's a lib. Is it definitely a staffer in your mind, or do you think that maybe one of the leftist judges on the court might have done this?
2: So my very first thought, and this first happened last May over a year ago now, was that it was probably a clerk from a liberal chambers, right? I mean, that's kind of a standard guess. So Sotomayor, Kagan, at that time, Breyer. So remember, remember at that time, Stephen Breyer was actually about to retire. So some people kind of immediately said, you know, maybe he's going into YOLO mode. You know, I never really bought that because, you know, Breyer was on the court for 30 plus years. He was in his 80s, a Clinton appointee. I mean, fundamentally a different era, right? I mean, he, he just kind of like an older, kind of more statesman-like liberal, not this kind of, you know, Sotomayor-like liberal. But... Here's what I will say, if it was a clerk, I think there's probably a higher likelihood that they would not have gone to these lengths to shield the identity. So I actually genuinely do believe, especially after the Marshall's totally underwhelming report came out back in January, and I doubly believe, I think after this interview that, uh, that Sam Alito gave to James Taranto at the Wall Street Journal, I am. I am kind of coming to the conclusion personally that I actually think it's. It probably is a justice, and that's not something that I would have said last May. But the fact that they're going to such lengths to try to bury this story really does kind of make me think that it probably is Sonia Sotomayor. And you know, I. I don't have a smoking gun for that. I. I, I would be you know remiss if I didn't say that. I don't want to you know, sound like a uh, you, you know like tinfoil hat guy over here, but. Looking just at where kind of the evidence is leading me right now, again, I, th- I think if it was a clerk, they probably would have just publicly identified the clerk. I mean, but the fact that they're hiding it, I, I, I'm thinking it's so sort to of my overbuck.
0: My 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 theory all along has been they don't they don't want to know. And what we've seen more recently, I, I think, goes right along with that. And I appreciate that you're willing to even say who you think it is. To me, it was a, it, it was likely to be a justice all along here. Given this issue, right, this isn't about eminent domain. Not that that's not important, but that's not, you know, people generally don't lose their mind over that, right? Abortion. Uh, the the left thinks that this is really it's really the foundation of their immoral ethics. <laughs> I, I would argue that this is this is like the building block for all of their demonic insanity. Uh, so in case that is what I, where I said on all that stuff. I want to ask you about the affirmative action case What students for fair admission v. North Carolina and students for fair admission v. Harvard. That's expected to come out next month. Basically, for everybody watching this, if you've ever felt like affirmative action, this is so obviously unconstitutional. How the hell has this been able to go on as long as it has in admissions and a whole range of things? It might get a big loss. A big L may be coming its way here soon. We'll talk to Josh about it in just a second. But, you know, the economy is... On the brink right now, for a lot of people, bank failures could happen anytime. They've already happened, some of them. It could be more, and who knows what commercial real estate's going to lead to. We're heading into a really rough patch here, I think, on the economy. So what are you going to do? I say prepare. Gold. What is the thing that has never been worth zero? What is the thing that is a store of value in the most turbulent times, not just throughout American history, throughout all of history? Gold. Right now, you can take action and get some gold and some silver, also another very precious, uh, important precious metal, on hand. Get actual, real, physical gold and silver with the Oxford Gold Group. Um, You can also have it in your IRA or 401k. Gold is an easy portfolio protection plan to get started with or to add to if you've already been doing this for a while. I've got gold sitting right here with me in the studio. Call the Oxford Gold Group today. Talk to them about what you're looking to spend. Talk to them about your portfolio size. They want long-term gold buyers. They want people who are long-term customers. So that means they want you to feel good about the position you're building up over time. But you want to start now, before the economy goes really into a bad place, gold prices are going to go only in one direction. Call 833-404-GOLD. The Oxford Gold Group. Ask about free bonus opportunities you may be eligible for. 833-404-GOLD. Students for fair admission, Josh, are they going to prevail? What do you think the justice count will be at the Supreme Court and what will the effect be? Take it away, sir.
2: Yeah, so these are these are big cases. I mean, you know, these affirmative action cases, I think, are by far the most important cases, the juiciest cases, the sexiest cases, you might say, on the Supreme Court's docket this term. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't point out, Buck, um, the intellectual godfather of these two cases was someone who passed away recently way, way too young from brain cancer, a, a brilliant former Clarence Thomas clerk by the name of Will Concevoy. So, it, it, you know, first of all, it would be wonderful posthumous kind of vindication of Will Concevoy, who I knew personally and was just an absolutely brilliant legal mind if the court does finally do away with affirmative action. So Very brief history of affirmative action in the Supreme Court. So there was a case in 1978 out of California called Bakke, which was kind of the first time that the Supreme Court basically legitimized the idea that despite the very clearly worded statute that is a civil rights act, which very clearly forbids discrimination in higher education, that's Title VI on the basis of race. So Bakke is the first time that the court basically said that, no, you actually kind of sort of can get around this with some kind of quota style things. Infamously in 2003, two cases out of the University of Michigan, one called Grutter, one called Grass, the Supreme Court, basically affirmed the basic holding of Bakke. They tweaked the, the formula a little bit, but very bad ruling there. And the court has punted multiple times since then, including a case out of University of Texas called Fisher. They, they declined to overturn Grutter and Bakke. But I really do think this is the time. I, I actually genuinely think that this actually is the time in these cases out of Harvard and, U- and University of North Carolina. And the reason that you have both those cases, by the way, so it's one public school, one private school. The basic idea here is that the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, directly applies to a public university because a public university is a state actor, whereas the private university, Harvard, um, it, you could make an argument that's a state actor because they take federal funds, but it's it's certainly covered by Title VI, um, the statutory hook of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So long story short, so the current court, you have I mean, you know, people would say you have five to six conservative justices, depends how you want to count John Roberts. Uh, it's, it's basically a 3-3-3 three, three, three court where you have three solid liberals, you have three fairly reliable conservatives, Thomas, Alito, and I'll count Gorsuch here, even though that's a more complicated conversation. Then you have these kind of three in the middle, Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Roberts. So if you're starting to count votes, which is kind of what you have to do to play this kind of parlor game. I, I count six votes, honestly, I, and I actually think that this is one issue. This is at legitimately maybe the only issue, literally the only jurisprudential issue that I think John Roberts is probably actually solid on because he's been solid on this issue going back to his first years at the court. In fact, John Roberts' his most famous line that he has ever put into a Supreme Court opinion probably comes from a 2007 case out of Seattle, Seattle Washington called Parents Involved, where he famously said, quote, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And, you know, look, if you have Roberts, then you clearly have the votes there because there's no way that Roberts would take that without everyone else falling in line. So I I am actually cautiously optimistic about the last remaining actual form of systemic racism in America going away next month. I really am.
0: What will it look like if if the decision comes down? uh, Let's say it's a six, three. Uh, or it doesn't matter, right? Five, four, six, three. But if the decision does overturn it, what will the implications be for schools? Which schools, private, public? How do you think that breaks down?
2: So if you rule against UNC and Harvard, then you're going to end up applying both the Constitution and the Civil Rights Act. So, in you know, in theory, both those opinions come out the right way. And by the way, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the reason that, that these cases are separate in addition to the public-private thing is that Katanji Brown-Jackson is actually recused from the Harvard case because she was on some board there or something. So, uh, you know, my guess formally, I guess, would be 6-3 in the UNC case, 6-2 in the Harvard case with, with Jackson uh, recused. But, you know, in theory, the consequences should be pretty drastic. Um, but I, I do, you know, I, I hate to sound kind of black and pessimistic, but I am saying in theory here... <laughs> Because, you know, I mean, you and I know how these universities work, Buck. I mean, there's a lot of kind of behind the scenes kind of, you know, you know, DEI bureaucrats who are still kind of, you know, know, the foxes running the hen house. And, you know, I, I think the conventional wisdom, which I generally share, is that a lot of these admissions offices will basically find a way to do it while trying to hide the ball. So they'll basically just kind of give out offers, people who are clearly underqualified while basically making crap up. And, you know, the question at that point becomes, how do you police the making crap up thing? And I don't know. I don't actually know exactly what that would entail. I mean, at that point, though, it might be more of a state-level issue. Um, You know, maybe some more states can kind of, you know, more narrowly craft some very clever statutes to kind of outlaw specific practices. Probably the kind of thing that here in Florida, Ron DeSantis and the Florida legislature might want to take a look at next term if the affirmative action cases do indeed go the way that I'm predicting. But I, I, I totally, totally anticipate that universities will do everything they can to get around this.
0: Yeah, my sense is that they, they're getting rid of uh, the SAT, for example, in a lot of elite, uh, supposedly elite schools. Some people will still submit their SAT, of course. You know, if you're, a, you're an Asian kid, you know, Asian American kid, you're going to submit your 1600 SAT, even if it's not required, but by not making it required at Columbia or Harvard or wherever. They can then it's hard. It makes it easier to cover the tracks of the continuation of the holistic, you know, racial preference system that they have holistic in quotes that they have in place. Right. I mean, that's that's how I think, because I, I know this because I remember uh, one of these decisions or the earlier ones you mentioned came down when I was at Amherst and uh, studying with your main man, Hadley Arcus, by the way. What's up? Hadley sends high fives to everybody out there. For those, of you who know, him Hadley Arcus in the house. Uh, but I remember the president of Amherst College said at some big open forum on this, look, honestly, it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. We're going to keep taking who we want to take and we'll get around it. Right. And I, I was I was like, wow, look at that. Just imagine, imagine the Supreme Court said you can't discriminate against black and Latino students in admission and you had a president of a college come forward and say, well, I mean, I don't right. care what the Supreme Court says. We're still going to do that. He did that. He just did it against other races, not those races. That's exactly... Uh, That was uh, that was actually, gosh, I can't remember the guy's name. We had a president, Marx, aptly named, I might add. Um, But then there was the the one before him. I can't even remember the president's name. Guy was a a bureaucrat. Um, Let's talk about Trump and his legal woes. We're going to put you in the role of Trump uh, legal advisor, maybe even Trump defense attorney here in a second based on what he's facing. So we'll get to that. Uh, but first, uh, a word from our sponsor, the of Towers Foundation. The of Towers has been honoring America's heroes ever since the tragic events of 9-11. The foundation honors fallen and severely injured heroes and their families with mortgage-free homes. This year alone, hundreds of gold star and fallen first responder families with young children and our nation's most severely injured veterans and first responders are receiving homes. More than 500 homeless veterans received housing and services last year, and more than 1,500 are receiving housing and services this year. And this coming Memorial Day, all of the brave men and women lost since 9-11 in the War on Terror are having their names read aloud in a Tunnel to Towers ceremony in our nation's capital. Through the Tunnel to Towers 9-11 Institute, the foundation is educating kids in kindergarten through 12th grade about our nation's darkest day. Join Tunnel to Towers on its mission to do good. Please help America to never forget its greatest heroes. Join me in donating $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's T, the number two, T.org. All right, Josh. Which additional we know that Trump just lost this civil case uh, to you know Eugene Carroll in New York. We know he's facing this 20 some odd counts of felony, like misspelling or whatever, basically, that he's uh, paying off the, the porn star with the money. Uh, that's in Manhattan. There's also Georgia and there's a special counsel and maybe there's something else they're going to throw at us. Uh, we're not even thinking of right now. Which of these are you the most certain? is going to be a a problem for him? And do you think they're going to go all the way on the special counsel with a federal indictment from Jack uh, Jack Smith?
2: I mean, they definitely might. So, look, I mean, I think the conventional wisdom, which I probably share, is that the classified document stuff, the infamous Mar-a-Lago raid last August, I think that probably will not amount to anything. Uh, I mean, it's kind of remarkable how quickly we've forgotten. But I mean, Joe Biden literally had his own classified documents retention scandal. I mean, it was just in January. His happened to be, you know, a, as many things in Biden world are. His happened to have some implications for the Chinese Communist Party. So, uh, if I were the Feds, I personally, you know, if I if I were Mister Smith, I, as, as a special prosecutor, I probably would be shying away a little bit from that case. A little more towards the January sixth case, but you know here is why. And, and to be clear, Buck, I, I think that the January sixth stuff is is legally speaking is beyond frivolous. Um, you know this notion that he incited violence, let alone incited insurrection. I mean, there is direct U.S. Supreme Court case law on point here from the nineteen sixties. The the, the thresholds where you have to, where you have speech that is not First Amendment protected that actually results in incitement of violence. It is a very, very, very high threshold. and I've, I've read over what Donald Trump said at the ellipsis and in that infamous speech on January 6, 2021, in my estimation, it does not come anywhere close to how the D.C. Municipal Code defines incitement to violence, but Having said that, you know, we're not dealing here with people who are following the black letter of the law. We're dealing with, with a situation where they had this January 6th special committee kangaroo court with Liz Cheney and Madden Kinzinger and the whole thing. You know, I mean, fundamentally, they probably wouldn't have done that. They wouldn't have issued their report to DOJ the way that they did recommending charges if we didn't ultimately know that the fix was in there. So I I fear that the fix probably is in when it comes to the January 6th issue, but the other one that, I, that if I were Trump's lawyer, that I would be most concerned about is Georgia. And, you know, what happened in Georgia, of course, there was, there was the infamous Brad Raffensperger phone calls. Uh, uh, Trump says it was the greatest, most perfect phone call of all time, kind of similar to his 2019 phone call with Vladimir Zelensky, the one that they tried to impeach him on frivolous grounds for the first time. But the Raffensperger stuff in Georgia, I think I, I think if they have the audio that we have not heard yet, but that there are all these rumblings that that they've heard, That's potentially looking very, very dicey. And I think a lot of people there have already kind of agreed to immunity deals, if I'm not mistaken there. That is typically kind of signs that that the prosecutorial apparatus is is about to kick up into very high gear. So, you know, of those three cases, um, J6, classified documents in Georgia, I would be least concerned about the classified documents, but uh, decently concerned about the other two for sure.
0: Do you think that they intend to try to lock Donald Trump up?
2: Yeah, I I I do. I mean, I absolutely do think that, Bob. Me too. I mean, yeah. Um, I I I I I think that they're probably. I, I I hate to sound like borderline conspiratorial, but you know, I think we're only five, ten years away from people like you and me being in their crosshairs, of being locked up. I mean, five to ten years maybe is being a little too generous here, right? I mean, I I mean, the stuff that you say on the radio every day, the stuff that like I write and say. I mean, are we not kind of inciting, like you know, all sorts of fabricated charges? So. I mean, that basically, I think, is where we're headed, but Donald Trump is the tip of the spear. So look, I mean, I have definitely been critical of Donald Trump on any number of occasions, but one thing where I think he actually is exactly right is when he goes on social media and he says to his most diehard supporters, they're coming after me because they're eventually going to come after you. I think that's actually exactly right. I, I think that that, that is, I, you know, I'm not sure if it's sincere or cynical when he says it subjectively, but as a matter of analysis, I think it happens to be exactly right. So yeah, I mean, there's nothing that Merrick Garland and Joe Biden would ultimately like more if they do win reelection in 2024 than sending Donald Trump to prison. I think that's absolutely the end game.
0: What is your. What is the most interesting Supreme Court decision to you? It's like a trivia question to close us out here.
2: Uh, all the, time. The most, the most interesting case of all time. Wow. Um, that's a tough one, to be honest with you. Um,
0: you can defer; I, I mean, we, we we can bring you back. You can tell us another time. I, I, that's I've never asked um, anyone that question before, but
2: yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I mean, there's like a few that come immediately to mind, right? I mean, the, you know, the term "interesting" is kind of doing a lot of work there. So I'm, I'm trying to like think of like interesting fat patterns, whatever. Look, so, I mean, like there's a case out of the late 1980s called Morrison versus Olson, um, uh, pertaining to the constitutionality of an independent council. This idea that you can not have a special council but an actual independent counsel, someone who is outside the chain of command of the Department of Justice. And, you know, this, this became quite relevant ultimately in the 1990s with Ken Starr and Whitewater and, and all that good stuff back from my childhood before I was paying attention to any of this sordid business. And in Morrison versus Olson, the court held uh, eight to one, actually, that the independent counsel was constitutional. But in a dissent, a, a, a solo dissent, that has been completely vindicated, Uh, Antonin Scalia, the late, great Justice Antonin Scalia, said that, no, this actually is totally unconstitutional because, uh, you know, uh, this is basically what conservative lawyers call unitary executive theory, which is a very fancy lawyerly term, meaning that the commander in chief, the president, has unilateral plenary authority over the executive branch, full stop, period, end of story. And, you know, ultimately, the independent counsel phased out. That law was not renewed. And Scalia's dissent, his solo dissent in an 8-1 case is now basically universally viewed as correct across law school, academia, faculty lounges across the country. Now, why is that relevant? Why do I say it's interesting? Because if you take that seriously, if you take seriously the basic holding that the president has unilateral authority over over his entire executive branch, That makes all the difference in the world when it comes to the administrative state, when it comes to the deep state, when it comes to kind of ferreting out all these leftist whistleblower hacks deep in the bowels of the intelligence community. So I think it's actually, it's a very interesting opinion because Scalia is also just a wonderful writer, but it has deep, deep real world implications in the 2020s uh, as well.
0: I wanted to just let Josh Hammer do a constitutional nerd flex there for everybody and There we go. Or Supreme Court slash constitutional flex. So, well done, sir. Impressive. Um, Thanks for being with us, man. Go check out the Josh Hammer Show podcast where he gets into a lot of things we talked about today and a whole lot more. And look for his latest uh, at Newsweek where he's going to be writing lots of good stuff. Josh, thanks so much, man.
2: Anytime, Bucky. Bet.
0: who is there for heroes of the families left behind when a service member or first responder dies or is catastrophically injured in the line of duty? Who helps our country's homeless veterans? And who helps our nation to never forget 9-11? Let me tell you who, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. The Foundation's gold star, fallen first responder, smart home, and homeless veteran programs comprise their in-the-line-of-duty programs. They're all dedicated to honoring our nation's heroes and their families. The Foundation's never-forget programs engage people in 9-11 remembrance across America. Over 80 runs, walks, and climbs a year. Dozens of golf outings. And the Tunnel to Towers 9-11 Institute is educating kids kindergarten through 12th grade to help our nation keep its vow to never forget. More than 95 cents of every dollar you donate to Tunnel to Towers goes to its programs. Never forget the sacrifices of our country's greatest heroes. Donate $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's T, the number two, T, dot org. If you are an accredited investor, U.S. oil and gas should be part of your investment portfolio. Visit LabradorEnergy.com. Beyond the possibility to invest in a sector that historically delivers sound returns, when you invest with Labrador Energy, you may be able to structure your investment to offset active or passive income. According to many sources, U.S. oil and gas drilling remains one of the best tax advantaged income investments available. Visit LabradorEnergy.com. You may be able to reduce your tax liability while investing in a sector that has historically delivered sound returns. Learn more at LabradorEnergy.com today. Offer for accredited investors only. Past performance is no indication of future results. Investing involves risk. Consult your legal, tax, and financial advisors and read the prospectus before making any investment decisions. Visit LabradorEnergy.com for the prospectus and more information